Hey guys, uh, welcome to tonight's um, Heavy Revy. It's been a while. Uh, my sister came to visit and um, had a little bit of ketchup after that. Yeah, I feel that I'm a little bit in the dark here. Let me see if I can get some light on the subject. Uh, but I am excited about tonight's training. And um, we're now, you know, we're past the... Uh, behind the scenes of the beast from the sea, the beast of the earth. We've got had the two harvests, and we've discussed what those are. And now we're to the bowls. So uh, we've had our intermission, our behind the scenes. We're now getting back into what is happening in heaven. Let's start with Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire, and on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them, and they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. Now that's interesting that they were singing the song of Moses. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. So this is like a, a remix of Moses' song, but it's important to understand why it's here in um, Revelation called Moses' song even though it's not the exact song that we see in uh, Exodus 15. That's the one where they sang after the Red Sea incidents. They, you know, crossed over. Um, you have the other story in Joshua uh, chapter 3, I believe, where they crossed over the dead, the, the Jordan Sea. And now, you know, we've got this situation where it says, um, I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. Uh, so there's... Obviously, John is connecting the Exodus story, and I have taught for years, I would say probably at the very least, maybe 15 years, that Moses and the story of the Exodus is a picture of the end of the age. And one of the things I always say is the Israelites lived in Goshen, completely protected from the plagues, completely protected from the wrath of God or the judgments of God. The wrath was when um, the sea swallowed them up. But um, they were persecuted for everything that was happening and the demand for them to be let go to worship God in the wilderness. So here we see that the revelation John is getting connects Moses, Egypt, Israel, and even the plagues, and then the exodus of when they come out into the promised land. So it's all a type and shadow. It's also uh, a picture of the catching away. So the song in Exodus 15 was led by Miriam. She was considered a prophetess, which is both one who foretells the future, but also one who sings, uh, a musician. And um, she sang it after the Red Sea incident where Pharaoh's army was destroyed. They followed, tried to follow them into the promised land and they ended up getting destroyed in their pursuit. Egypt ceased to be a, a superpower from that point on. They never recovered and uh, even to this day. And remember, like we discussed, Egypt was the first of the seven heads 
in Revelation chapter 13. So remember, those are kingdoms or empires that are antichrist in nature. And the reason they're in Revelation and the reason they're considered part of the seven heads is because of how they interact with Israel and then also Christians in later kingdoms. So this is a first precedent principle in scripture. Wherever you see a word first used or you see a a situation first used and then it repeats itself, there's typically that first use is a, a context for the second. So like, for example, in, I think it might be Genesis 29, when it's uh, Laban's sons are talking about Jacob and they said they stole, he stole our, glad, our dad's glory. Uh, that word glory is the first place that kabod is used, which is the Hebrew word for glory, but it's actually translated in almost every other translation, uh, wealth. And that's what they were referring to as wealth. So the first place that glory is used in the Bible is tied to wealth. So that's a first principle use, and that implies that in the glory of God is also included wealth, okay? So here we have, you know, this um, first precedent. It's right after victory, and then they go right into the promised land, and they learn how to fight the enemy and to clear out the promised land to war against the nations in order to take the land. So the same is true at the end of the age when the Lord returns, Uh, If we're alive, we receive our resurrected bodies. Those that are dead are resurrected and and come along with the Lord. We meet him in the air and then we immediately go to war with him, destroying his enemies, Uh, the Antichrist, those that took the mark uh, as well. And uh, so the bowls are being poured out before, um, or I'm sorry, the bowls are being poured out as a wrath. So if you look at the seals and you look at the trumpets, those were judgments. We're now in the wrath and uh, there's no turning back. Um, So in in, uh, Revelation 15, 5 through 8, it says, Then I looked and saw the temple in heaven. God's tabernacle was thrown wide, wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. They were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures being handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. So again, plague is you know tied to the Exodus. Uh, we've got now a clear uh, delineation between judgments are meant to cause repentance to now wrath where there is no room for repentance. In Exodus 40 verses 34 through uh, 35, it says, then the cloud covered the temple and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Moses could no longer enter the temple because the cloud had settled down over it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So again, we have this tie to Moses and the glory. And then in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11, it happened again in Solomon's time where it says, when the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the very glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. So uh, the glory that filled that temple later on left that temple. Uh, So 
now we're seeing in Revelation where the the glory is in the heavenly temple um, and no one will be able to get in until the wrath is complete. Well, in Exodus uh, 10, 1 through 22, um, it's a sad story. I'm going to read it in its entirety um, and I probably won't have too much commentary on it, but I just want to show you where God left his temple in the Old Testament because of idolatry. It says, In my vision I saw what appeared to be a throne of blue lapis uh, la lazuli above the crystal surface over the heads of the cherubim. And by the way, whenever you see cherubim in the Bible, usually the Lord's presence is with them because that was their job, is to protect the Lord's presence. So he kind of rode on them um, as he would go and do whatever it is that God does at times. <laughs> So then the Lord spoke to a man in linen clothing and said, Go between the whirling wheels beneath the cherubim and take a handful of burning coals and scatter them over the city. He did this as I watched. The cherubim were standing at the south end of the temple where the man went in, and the cloud of glory, glory filled the inner courtyard. Then the glory of the Lord rose up from above the cherubim and went over to the entrance of the temple. The temple was filled with this cloud of glory, and the courtyard glowed brightly with the glory of the Lord. The moving wings of the cherubim sound like a, the voice of God Almighty and could be heard even in the outer courtyard. Then the Lord said to the man, okay, so first the glory of the Lord rose up and went over to the entrance of the temple. The temple is filled with the cloud. It's glowing brightly with his glory. And then the Lord said to the man in temple clothing, go between the cherubim, take the burning coals. So the man went, he stood behind, beside one of the wheels. Then one of the cherubim reached out of his hand out his hand and took some of the live coals from the fire burning among them. And he put the coals into the hands of the man in linen clothing. And the man took them and went out. All the cherubim had what looked like human hands under their wings. I looked and each of the four cherubim had a wheel beside him and the wheels sparkled like barrel. All four wheels looked alike and were made the same. Each wheel had a second wheel turning crosswise within it. The cherubim could move in any of the four directions they faced without turning as they moved. They went straight in the direction they faced, never turning aside. Both the cherubim and the wheels were covered with eyes. The cherubim had eyes all over their bodies, including their hands, their back, and their wings. I heard someone refer to the wheels as the whirling wheels. Each of the four cherubim had four faces. The first was the face of an ox. The second was a human face. The third was the face of a lion. And the fourth, fourth the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose upward. These were the living beings I had seen beside the Kabar River. When the cherubim moved, the wheels moved with them. And when they lifted their wings to fly, the wheels stayed beside them. And when they stopped, blah, blah. So then as I watched, the cherubim flew with their wheels to the east gate of the Lord's temple. And the glory of God of Israel hovered above them. So now they've gone from the threshold into the temple. And now they're over to the gate, the east gate of the temple. The Lord is going to return at the eastern gate of Jerusalem. So it's a very interesting uh, thing going on here. These were the same living beings I had seen beneath the God of Israel when I was in Kabar. Um, he goes into it again. Uh, but the main idea is the glory of the Lord left in that chapter. So if you read Genesis uh, or Exodus 9, you read Exodus 10, um, he left. And so the glory is now returning here in Revelation 15, because both uh, physical Jew and spiritual Jew are now joined into one man. They're now one 
nation in Christ, or they're making up the one new, new man. So this unity releases an incredible glory in the heavenly temple. And uh, the word tabernacle, God's tabernacle, the temple that's in heaven, it's a combo of words. It's marturion, which um, is to witness testimony and proof. And then it's skein, which is tabernacle or booth, hut, tabernacle, and tent. So it's a booth built out of branches and is a completion. This event is a completion of the last required feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. This is his tent of witness. And those who did not love their lives to death play a pivotal role in what is about to happen because it's from this place of martyrdom that the seven angels with the bowls exist from. Okay, so some have suggested that the idea that you cannot enter the temple is actually like a, a figure of speech that um, the temple's closed off to any petition, to any intercession during the wrath of God. That, you know, the end of the age of grace is, is here. So there's no, there's no way to stop it. There's no way to, um, you know, pray for people that they get it. It's too late. And uh, so then we see in Revelation chapter 16, 1, that I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, go your ways, ways and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. Okay, so if we're going along the lines of Matthew, Luke, events in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Daniel, and now Revelation, we are right in line. Those things, they, they are um, uh, identical. They mirror each other, okay? So there's no confusion. Um, we've confused it, but there's no confusion. And we've had the tribulation, uh, we've had the final Antichrist ruler in his kingdom. He made a treaty with Israel, as Daniel outlines. He broke the treaty. He's been given authority for 42 months or three and a half years to do whatever he wants, like Antiochus Epiphanes. So the Daniel Company uh, series goes into de detail on that. I think also the last heavy Rebbe, I went into that section and talked about the geopolitical forces that have been removed for the Antichrist revealing and now heaven is restrained from responding to this blasphemy and war against the people of God because it's serving a purpose. So the seals and the trumpets with the woes, they've all occurred. The last trump has occurred in which we're caught up uh, to the Lord, which is outlined in perfect uh, synchrony and detail in Revelation chapter 14 as the first harvest, which we discussed last time. Now we're into that extra bit of time at the end before the Lord sets up his earthly kingdom. So some scholars have it at 40 days. Other scholars have it at 70. Um, but the time of repentance, like I said, has ended. The age of grace is over. And so he's post-return. We have that 30 to 70 days where he's basically killing his enemies and the wrath of God is being poured out. So the king has returned to take back what is his. And it fits nicely into the, the um, uh, when you know the language, the patterns, you know, the rest of the word, take it as a whole, not just pieces. Um, it all fits very nicely. So the voice from the temple of which no one can enter into, until his wrath is complete releases the angels to go out and go ahead and pour out the bowls. So in uh, Revelation 16, 2 through 7, it says, the first angel left the temple and he poured out his bowl on the earth and horrible malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast 
and who worshiped his statue. Now, the fact that he's saying everyone and then he gives the qualifying factors. They have the mark and they worship the beast, implying there's some that don't have the mark. There's some who did not worship the beast. These are the ones I've talked about that they may not be part of the first resurrection because they weren't born again, but they also resisted the Antichrist and his dominion. So they may be, you know, uh, neutral, but sorry, that's my cats, but um, they didn't worship the beast. So there's going to be some people that don't know God that are not going to worship the beast. And you can imagine their surprise when Jesus Christ returns on a horse from heaven with a bunch of dead people. Right. So that's, you know, if you don't believe at that point, I don't know what to tell you. So then we had the second angel. He poured his bowl out on the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and everything in the sea died. Again, reminiscent of the Exodus. The third angel poured out his bowl in the rivers and springs. They also became blood. And I heard an angel who had authority over all water saying, you are just a holy one who who is and who always was because you have sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are just and true. So again, Exodus, the plagues, here we got plagues, etc. Then in verses 8 through 9, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, causing it to scorch everyone with its fire. Everyone was burned by this blast of heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over all these plagues. They did not repent of their sins. They did not turn to God. They did not give him glory. Now, this is where we have to understand that God is just in his judgments. First of all, he did not create hell for humans. He created hell for the devil and his his, uh, angels and demonic beings. Man chose to follow the devil. So, unfortunately, those that have his nature when they die, that's where they go. Um, but it's just because we may think, well, that person was so nice or that person, you know, did this or that person did that for their community, blah, blah. That has nothing to do with it. It's the nature. There's only two races on earth in God's eyes, Adam's and Jesus's. That's in first Corinthians 15, I believe, um, 29 and on. So in God's mind, you're either of Adam's race, which is fallen, or you're of his race, which is not. And those that are of Adam's race that hear this, you know, stuff's going on, they're cursing God. So that tells you that their heart condition has not been um, soft. In fact, it's hardened even more in his judgments. So the reason the people go to hell, it's not whether they are a good person or they lived a good life. It's do they have his nature when they die? That's the only question. That's why you must be born again. Uh, And then in verses 10 through 11, we have the fifth angel. He pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. His subjects ground their teeth in anguish and they cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores, but they didn't repent their evil deeds and turn to God, of course. The word curse is to speak against someone in such a way as to harm or injure his reputation. It is blasphemeo in the Greek and it's to speak evil of, slander, relegance, smite with reports or words. The word control, where it says that um, God is the one who is in control, is exousia. And it's a word that means authority, right, power, and liberty. So it's like um, a cop with their badge and they're training their gun. They have authority to um, enforce civil law. 
uh, or criminal law. Um, so it's the same thing. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. Father is the father of the earth as well, and he alone has the right to judge this way. And notice that they're plunged into darkness, strikingly similar to Egypt. Then you have verses 12 through 14, where it says a sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River, and it dried up so that the kings of the east could march their armies toward the west without hindrance. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They are demonic spirits who work miracles and go out to all the rulers of the world to gather them for battle against the Lord on that great day of judgment, uh, or great judgment day of God the Almighty. So basically a hook is being put in the nose of his enemies and they're being drawn into battle because they actually believe they can defeat God because of the three evil spirits that look like frogs that they're from the mouth. And so um, they're deceived into thinking this is actually a possibility. Uh, they empower seducing words. Uh, so by the way, you got the dragon speaking, you got the beast speaking. Um, and uh, they uh, empower with seducing words along with miracles that entice the world to gather into battle against God. So basically you see open Satanism, you see open elitists pushing their satanic agenda, seducing our youth, etc., I um, received an article out of Cosmopolitan that said um, how to have a um, satanic ritual when you abort your baby. So we're seeing an increase of the satanic being wide open. And the church better wise up because it's in our country. And we need to understand that the way we're doing things is not working. And we need to shift back to the original model that's in the book of Acts. So the word miracles here is sign, mark, token, miracle with a spiritual end and purpose. In the plural, miracles which lead to something out of and beyond themselves like God's miracles. They're not valuable so much for what they are as for what they indicate of the grace and the power of the doer. So when you're talking about the Lord, there's the grace and the power. But it can also be signs and wonders wrought by false prophets came, claiming to act by divine authority. So the Antichrist is trying to hold on to his power, even though he gets the, um, the, um, the sores, you know, the blood's turned or the water's turned to blood, all that stuff. He's trying to maintain power and control. And uh, so true legitimate miracles are the work of God, but the enemy works lying signs wonders. Um, and I remember being around a bunch of New Agers years ago. They were not impressed with miracles in the Christian faith because they had their own. It was shocking, actually. I had to spend a whole weekend on a mountain with them. Yep, that is interesting. So let's go back to our text in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-12, through 12, where it says, Don't be fooled by what they say. For that day, or the day of wrath, will not come until there is a great rebellion against God. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. And he will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, for he can only be revealed when his time comes. Which again, that goes back to Daniel, I believe it's chapter 9, the Antiochus Epiphanes, the whole abomination of desolation that occurred in that chapter, the geopolitical things. That's what that's referring to there. It is not referring to the Holy Spirit and is not referring to the church. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. 
Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than enjoying or believing the truth. Okay, so that's what we're talking about right here in this passage in Revelation 15. So now we have um, Revelation 16, 15. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all those who are watching for me who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. Now he's coming as a thief to those who don't know him. He's not coming as a thief to those of us that do. We don't know the day or hour, but we will have some preparation that's occurring through the Holy Spirit, letting us know that the time is getting close. Uh, we need to be watchful. We don't need to get complacent. We don't need to get sleepy. In uh, Matthew 24, 37 through 51, it says, When the Son of Man returns, it'll be like in Noah's day. They were having banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time that he entered the ark. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. So Noah knew, but the world who refused to believe they did not. Two men will be working together in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two men, women will be grounding uh, flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you two keep watch. You do not know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would have kept watch and not permitted his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least uh, expected. And he also says if he comes and finds you doing what you know you're supposed to do, you'll be rewarded. If not, uh, you're going to have a little bit of judgment there. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, it says, Now concerning how and when all of this will happen, the end of the age, the catching away, etc. Dear, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful, everything is secure, then disaster will fall on them suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. Now this is uh, in contradiction to what most teach. When he returns, there will be some semblance of peace on the earth. The only ones that won't have peace are those of us that are being persecuted for our faith. But the world will be experiencing peace and security because the Antichrist is in power. But that's when people should be concerned, but they're not. You are not in the dark about these things, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of light and of day. We don't belong to darkness tonight. So be on your guard, not asleep like others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is a time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. For God chose to save us, our Lord Jesus, not to pour out his anger on us. So the bowls, we're not going to experience um, that. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage and build one another up. So we're encouraged to live in the light of the day. Now, back in uh, Revelation 16, 6, it says, And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. 
Now, some believe that Armageddon is an actual location in Israel. Um, and it's the phrase of Mountain of Megiddo. The only problem is that the Old Testament speaks of the city of Megiddo, the valley of Megiddo, the waters of Megiddo, but there's actually not any mountain of Megiddo. That does not exist. So some have said it's the ancient uh, battle site or region of Megiddo, which was an ancient battleground. Uh, in the Anchor Yell Dictionary, it says the region of Megiddo was an ancient battleground. Battleground There the armies of Israel under Deborah and Barak defeated Sisera and his Canaanite army. And later it was the scene of the fatal struggle between Josiah and Pharaoh Necho. It goes on to say early church fathers such as Hippolytus and Jerome sought to locate Armageddon in Palestine, offering uh, suggestions such as the Valley of Jehoshaphat or Mount Tabor. The first proposal to gain wide currency was advanced by the earliest commentators on the book of Revelation. Uh, and then later they just continued it. Also, they understood that Megiddon is derived from the Hebrew root GDD, which means to cut or to gash. And they argued that the kings of earth are gathered in Revelation 16 to the mountain of slaughter to be exterminated. Um, some have said it's a reference to Jerusalem. Continuing, they said, other scholars, beginning with an unsigned article, gave attention to um, Megiddon, and that's identical in form to another word, which means fruitful or his fruitfulness. And so they feel that it might be Jerusalem, an uh, end of the age Jerusalem. Um, so this would associate the final battle scene there, um, which, you know, we can maybe go along with that. And then uh, another one is that it is a uh, mount of assembly, and it argues that Armageddon is referenced to Isaiah 14, 13, where the mountain of assembly is the heavenly court in which God's throne is located. I'm not sure about that because obviously the earth is, is the location of battle. So with our um, final verses, it says in 17 through 21, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple saying, it is finished. Then the thunder crashed and rolled, lightning flashed, a great earthquake struck, the worst since people were placed on the earth. The great city of Babylon spit, split into three sections, and the cities of the nations fell into heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins and made her drink the cup that has, was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. Every island disappeared, and all the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm and hailstones weighing as much as 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. And they still curse God because of the terrible plague of the hailstorm. So Babylon is split into three sections from an earthquake on a level that's not been experienced before. Um, uh, the worst in our history was the 9.5 in Chile. It literally shifted the earth on its axis. So just imagine the level of earthquake that's going to split Babylon into three sections and level mountains, right? Uh, many other cities um, of many nations also will be reduced to rubble, mountains leveled, etc. Um, so the judgment of Babylon, the mother of all abominable religions and antichrist governments first founded by the first world ruler, Nimrod, her judgment has come. So now we go into the next behind the scenes. We go into the next interlude, which shows us what all is going on uh, on earth, in particular, the judgment of Babylon. So we will dive into that, um, I think, next week. 
And um, so I hope this was, uh, you know, helpful for you guys. There's nothing to fear about Revelation. There's nothing to fear about these judgments. These are for those that um, worship the Antichrist, that took his mark, worshiped him, and the dragon. So we don't have to worry about the wrath of God. Um, I would say the only thing that, you know, could be worrisome a little bit is uh, persecution. But the thing is, is that, you know, we're not graced to endure persecution right now because we're not being persecuted. The grace to endure is when you're in the trial. So we don't need to, you know, get nervous. We don't need to, you know, think ahead or how am I going to do this? Or, you know, we just need to trust and we need to be obedient. And I know from recent events in my life that extreme obedience, following the directions of Holy Spirit, position you in the best place possible when crisis hits. Things that seem so normal and unimportant are actually what prepare you um, for the crisis you face. So again, two races on earth, those that are Adam, fallen race, those that are born again, Jesus Christ, um, his race that he started as a kingdom man, now seated at the right hand of the throne. That's all that matters. That's the only way you get to heaven is believing that Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead and asking him to be your Lord, right? It's a kingdom, gospel of the kingdom. You instantly have his nature. So it's not being a good person. It's not doing good things. It's not even going to church. I can't tell you how many people I've known that went to church their whole lives and they did not know Jesus. And later they're like, I had no idea. I didn't know Jesus. I thought I did because I went to church. I had no idea. So if we're born again and the, you know, even better spirit filled, then what happens is we're able to follow directions. We're able to do the things that we need to do. And we are not subject to the wrath of God. Okay. All right. So um, be blessed and I will see you guys next week.